Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Pleased to be starting another episode of the PFRA podcast. John Bozica, along with you, George, will join me later on the podcast once our guest joins us. And uh, excited about this guest that we're going to be joined by. We recorded this a little bit after the Super Bowl, uh, and I guess we were kind of inspired by some of the teams that were remaining in the uh, AFC and NFC playoffs around the time. And uh, this guy was a former Cincinnati Bengal, uh, former Green Bay Packer, Played on the offensive line for the Bengals. Played some uh, on the offensive line for the Packers. His name is Blake Moore. Played in the early 80s and uh, had some really cool stories about a number of different NFL players, number of guys he played with, his experience with Paul Brown, um, just his experience in the game and uh, a great discussion about the times uh, that he caught touchdown passes as well playing as an offensive lineman, which does not happen very often, but some really cool stuff as Blake Moore, uh, our next guest here on the PFRA podcast as part of the Sports History Network. Enjoy. Pleased to be back now on the uh, PFRA podcast and uh, joined by our guest of honor tonight, I guess you could say, and that is uh, Blake Moore, former uh, Cincinnati Bengal, former Green Bay Packer, uh, had a six-year career in the NFL, and uh, George and I are so pleased to have him on the podcast now. Blake, thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, great to be with you both, and uh, it's almost a year since we did our little uh, radio show about a year ago, John. That was a lot of fun to do, too, back in Westville, yes. Ohio. Yeah, it was. It was. It's uh, it's it's crazy that that has been a year. It was right around the time of the Super Bowl last year because uh, somebody told me, well, there is a Super Bowl connection to Worcester, Ohio. And I said, well, I got to talk to him. So uh, got the chance to. So let's let's talk a bit about you, Blake, and about your your kind of life in football. Let's start from uh, from day one with you. What inspired a young Blake Moore? to get into the game of football. I mean, I don't know how many years we're going back there, but what inspired that high school kid, that grade school kid, the kid in you to want to be a football player? Yeah, I guess, you know, back where I grew, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee in the South back in the sixties and seventies. And probably the main, one of the main motivating factors was my mom wanting to make sure I was out of the house doing something very active and very physical at all times possible. Um, so team sports, uh, Basically, any time of the year was it for us. And if you lived in the South back then, uh, particularly through high school, there was football and then there were all other sports. So if you were going to play a sport, you wanted to play a team sport, you basically you, you went out for football and you played football. And uh, also what's interesting, too, is uh, we played. Uh, there was no tackle football in the, uh, you know, when you're in elementary school back then. It was all flag football. There was no. We didn't put on the pads and the helmet until we were in seventh grade. Um, and uh, that was that was quite an eye-opening experience to do that for the first time after just playing flag football. So it goes way back. And, uh, you know, it was just always part of my life. I, I just I, it was hard in any given year to imagine not being on a football team. Yeah. And I mean, and, and growing up in the South, I mean, like you said, I mean, the South is, you know, that's SEC country down there. You know, you're talking about. You know, you got your Tennessee, you've got Alabama, you've got Auburn, you've got all the rivalries down there. I mean, you grew up in in not the deep south, but kind of that middle south of all of that. I mean, what were what were some of those early experiences like then in the game for you? What what's kind of the first like eye opening memory for you that you have where you're like, well, maybe maybe this isn't just something that I'm doing because I'm from the south and maybe it's something I'm pretty good at. When was that moment? (laughs) 
Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funnier story uh, when I wasn't sure I was cut out to be a football player. So the first time we, uh, first time we put on the pads and I was going to a very good uh, school, uh, Baylor high school there in Chattanooga in seventh grade. First time we put on the pads, um, we went out and uh, the coaches, now you had all kinds of drills back then that you can't do today. I, I think they would probably be banned today, but we had a nifty little drill called bull in the ring where uh, all the players would gather around in a circle and one person would go in the ring, right? And then on the command of the coach, people from around the circle would run in and smack the person in the middle of the circle with a, uh, with a tackling dummy. And, you know, they could do it as fast or as slow as they wanted. And uh, this was my first experience, really my first experience with full contact. And I, I can remember distinctly in the middle of the drill as I was getting pummeled by my teammates that I started to cry because I was so frustrated that I was getting beaten up. Um, and uh, so, you know, that was one of those hard lessons. You have to think, wow, do I really want to do this? And, but I was always pretty, uh, pretty persistent when I, when I thought it was something I wanted to do and I stuck it out and uh, turned out to be a pretty good decision. What took you to Worcester, Ohio from Tennessee? Oh boy, another great story. See, when you get to be my age, everything's a great story. George. Uh, so my, uh, I, had a, I had a pretty good high school career, and I did actually get some recruiting letters from some of the big schools in the South, Tennessee, Vanderbilt. Um, I remember those two. But I, my dad was, um, was very much uh, insistent on making sure I went somewhere I could get a really good education. He went to a very small liberal arts school. Um, and um, while he didn't uh, tell me to go to Worcester, he said, I really would like you to consider going to a liberal arts college, small liberal arts college. And, you know, at the time, football, I had no visions of playing football, college maybe, but certainly not beyond college. So it was all about the education. And um, as it turned out, uh, Worcester was a very good liberal arts, small liberal arts college. And uh, not only had my dad gone there, but uh, my great-grandfather had gone there, too. He was in the uh, first College of Worcester football team, 1889. Look it up. They were 2-0. Uh, and They beat Denison twice for that, uh, that sterling record. That, that's, a hell you know, of a, that's a hell of a schedule. Yeah, I know. I think they beat him 48 to nothing and 50 to nothing. So it was, uh, it was quite the blowout. Anyway, so um, I uh, – the, uh, I ended up going to Worcester. I wasn't, you know, there was no such thing as division three. There's no such thing really as recruiting back then. And I, I, uh, you know, showed up on campus and everything worked out great. I started my freshman year and started all four years, uh, at center, but I always, you know, the funny part of that story is, uh, I got to be pretty good, uh, pretty close with the offensive line coach who worked with me for four years there. And I remember sitting in his office, um, talking to him after, you know, my junior, senior year. And the only, only communication I had from, the, uh, from Worcester about football before I showed up for training camp uh, August of 1976 was I got a, a, a letter in the mail with a postcard. And on that postcard, it, it, it had a little message that said, do you plan to play Fighting Scott football? Check yes or no, and please, and send, please send it back. So I checked yes. I sent it back. And I'm sitting in my offensive line coach's uh, office, uh, you know, three years later, uh, having had a pretty good career. And, and I, re I relayed that story to him. He looked at me dead straight face and said, oh, yeah, you were our hottest recruit that year. <laughs> never, never even talked to him before I showed up on campus. That was the recruiting program at the College of Worcester. Well, I have to say you're, you're, you're being rather humble because I was looking at the Worcester record book preparing for our interview tonight and there's a picture of you in there and it says perhaps the greatest player in Worcester history Blake Moore so I think you're yeah. being a bit humble well I you know I love my time there we had a uh, we didn't win as many times as I like never beat Wittenberg that that's always stuck in my stuck in my crawl a little bit but um I loved playing division three football. You really truly played for the love of the game because you, know, you weren't there for a scholarship and you played, you played four years and you graduated and uh, nobody, nobody playing at Worcester had thoughts of playing in the NFL. It was just, you were just there to play college ball. And it was truly a wonderful experience. I loved it. I understand. Uh, I was, I was sort of uh, 
reading through your book also in preparation, and we'll give you an opportunity to talk about your book here a little bit later. Uh, you mentioned in the book that a, a local reporter in the Worcester area uh, invited you to come along with him to, uh, to uh, the Bengals uh, training camp and that you had an opportunity to meet uh, the great Paul Brown. Can you tell that story? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, when people ask me how I got, how I got noticed or how I got a shot in the NFL, um, that all has to go back to Ernie Enfield. Um, and Ernie Enfield uh, was a, a veteran, ex-Marine. Uh, he landed a job as a sports writer uh, there in, in Ohio and eventually ended up in Worcester writing for the Daily Record. He was also the sports information director for the college. I don't think that was a full-time job at Worcester. So he's doing both things. But Ernie Enfield, his, true, his first passion was baseball. And, of course, he wrote a column called Ramblin' Around the Infield. You can imagine, you know, he, he loved to play on words. Well, Ernie, since he, he spent all of his time in, in, in uh, northeast Ohio there, um, and, and when he was a reporter over covering high school, he covered Maslin. And he covered Maslin when Paul Brown, the Paul Brown, was the head coach of Maslin. And uh, they got to be they got to be friends, friends enough so that when, uh, you know, Paul moved on and eventually um, covered the coach, the Browns and then owned the Browns and eventually the Bengals. Ernie uh, always had a, 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 a full day, anytime pass to the Bengals training camp. So anytime he wanted to go down, spend a full day, interview anybody on the team, including Paul Brown or Mike Brown. He had a pass to do that and an invitation to do it. And he went down every year and he'd do a big spread in the newspaper, the Daily Record, telling, talking about uh, his day at tra Bengals training camp. Well, he took, he, 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 was, uh, he was kind enough to uh, uh, help me out from a press standpoint and a PR standpoint as the sports information director at Worcester and uh, helped me get a job one summer too. And, and that summer after my junior year, he said, let's go, we're loading up. We're going down to Bengals. We're going down to the Bengals training camp. And you're going to meet Paul Brown and Mike Brown. And uh, I want to introduce you because I think, I think they should pay attention to you. So we go down there. I, I, I've never been, I, I had never, let me think for a minute. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever been to an NFL game, much less an NFL training camp uh, at that time. So we go down to uh, Wilmington, Ohio, which is where they held training camp in those days. And uh, basically, there well, I just tagged along after Ernie. Ernie had full access to the camp. We walked. He, they put him on the sideline, uh, walked over, and introduced me to Paul Brown. You know, who was very humble and very kind, and and actually called the starting center for the Bengals. And remember, I played center in college. This was kind of my position. They called the starting center for the Bengals, Blair Bush, over to meet me in the middle of practice. Um, so, you know, I, I met Blair Bush. Here he is, the starting center for the Cincinnati Bengals. I was pretty awestruck. And then I just tagged along with Ernie the rest of that day. But the, the uh, offshoot, the upshoot of that, upshot of that was uh, the Bengals sent a scout out shortly after that to uh, scout me uh, and, you know, take my, take my times and watch me long snap and uh, all that kind of thing. And, and there's no secret in the NFL. So once they had done it, I got scouted by the Browns. Uh, the Raiders sent somebody out. I think the Seahawks sent somebody out. The scouts kept complaining about how hard it was to get to Worcester, Ohio. Uh, but, uh, you know, nevertheless, they, they found their way there. So, yeah, it was Ernie Infield, the Ernie Infield connection. Um, and uh, he was always uh, – he was very kind and uh, very, very proud of the fact, and, and, and rightfully so, that he was able to get me connected with the Bengals. And I got a shot. You mentioned that offensive line coach going back to your time at Worcester. Who was that coach, Blake? Art Morangi, uh, who coached me all four years. Uh, and I believe, uh, pretty sure he still lives in Worcester. Um, he, and then he eventually, his main sport ended up being lacrosse. He was the head, head, head lacrosse coach there for quite a while, as well as an assistant on the football team. Was he kind of like, and, and I know that like all players who make it to the NFL always say there was like that, coach that like early in my life like made me see I won't say the light to be too much of like a a, a usage of like cliches but I mean like made me kind of see the sport in a different way was he that guy or was it somebody before him you know that's hard to say I, I had I had a really good line coach in high school who actually played professionally for a few years Fred Hubs 
Um, and, uh, you know, the, the main thing about Art was he saw enough in me as a freshman, right, a skinny freshman, to uh, let me start at center uh, and actually moved a, moved a senior starter from center out to tackle to allow me to play center uh, and start as a freshman at Worcester. Um, and so, you know, there's nothing like playing and nothing like playing experience. And, and once you start, you know, and I, I love to play. And, uh, and I just, I, in college, I just fell in love with the sport again and just rededicated myself to uh, getting uh, bigger and better and stronger. When you eventually made it then out of Worcester and you made it to the Bengals, um, the guy who was the quarterback for that team was Ken Anderson. And yeah. I know you and I have talked about this before, but much like you, Ken Anderson came from a small liberal arts college. So, you tiny know, Augusta, tiny Augustana. You could almost couldn't say Ken Anderson's name without saying tiny Augustana after it. Right? Which is which is cool because it's like it's two different stories. It's a guy in your case that like got noticed, got into the NFL, and then you have a guy over here who, in what 1981, I think it was, wins the MVP of the league. I mean, did you and him have like kind of like a a, a close relationship because of the background that, that you guys both had? You know, I wouldn't say it was a close relationship. Ken, Ken was uh, Ken was a seasoned vet by the time I got there. I was kind of a wide-eyed rookie. Um, but uh, he was he was such a professional, and he didn't treat me any different than he treated anybody else on the team, uh, which is one of the one of the kindest things you can say about somebody at Ken, you know, at Ken's level. Um, that team was unique in a number of ways, though, because not only did we have two Division three players on the team, we had, uh, we, had a, we had a guy from Dartmouth, from, uh, from Harvard, from Lehigh, and Yale, all on that team uh, that year. Um, and so it was a pretty eclectic, as well as, you know, the two Division three guys and pretty eclectic mix of people. Um, and uh, Forrest Gregg, of course, his, his first year was my first year, 1980, with the Bengals. And it took him about a year to get the culture where he wanted it, you know, get the team all thinking and understanding the kind of self-discipline and sacrifice that was going to be required to win in the NFL. But once he got that in shape, that team of, I wouldn't say it was a team of superstars, although we had some really good players. It, uh, it it turned into a, a really, really good team. And that evidence itself, uh, my second year there when we went to the Super Bowl. Going back to the colleges that you mentioned, um, that seems to be part of, um, and we're going to talk about two things here, I guess. That seems to be part of the Paul Brown formula is that he wants a smart player um, and that they, he feels that that's very important in terms of putting together the best team possible. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And I think that, you know, if you had two players of equal talent, Paul would take the smart, the quote, smarter person or the, the football smarter person in a second. Um, it's, it's look, it's one of the reasons I, I got a shot and was able to make the team. I, I, uh, I was offered a contract with the Browns as well, at the same when I came out as a rookie. And I chose the Bengals because um, – they were going to have an entirely new coaching staff, Forrest Gregg, you know, new, whole new coaching staff, whole new offensive playbook. And I felt if I had any edge over any other player, it was that I, I should be able to learn the playbook and at least know the right place to be in at the right time. I might get run over by the, uh, by the defensive lineman, but I would at least be in the right place at the right time. Um, and I think that paid off for me because um, I got a fair shot. Everybody was starting from the, uh, from the, uh, a level playing field as we got into training camp and uh, um, that, that panned out pretty well. But yeah, Paul was very much a character guy. Um, and again, you know, two, two people are equal talent uh, and he judged one to have a higher character. He would, he would definitely lean to the character. It's my understanding at that time, based on some things that you said in your book that he was still very actively involved. He was not just a, you know, um, a figurehead, you know, at that point, and just being Paul Brown, he was still very actively involved. Very active, very active. In fact, I, he would come in and talk. I remember this distinctly. He would come in and talk to the rookies uh, every year during training camp, and he would stay at Wilmington in the dorm. He would stay in the dorm at Wilmington uh, during training camp while we were up there, 
he would come in and, and give a, uh, a rookie talk uh, before each season to all the rookies. And at the time, now you got to remember these days, rookies, um, we weren't making very much money. Um, and uh, especially, especially free agent rookies from the college of Worcester. But that went up and down the line. Nobody was, nobody was retiring on your uh, NFL uh, salaries back then. But he would come in and give pretty much the same speech every year and talk to the rookies and say, look, Ben, you need to understand this about uh, your career in the NFL. Uh, you don't know how long it's going to last, and you always need to think of it as a means to an end and not an end in of itself. That is, use it as a, as a, it's, it's a career for you now, uh, figure out what you want to do with your life because you're not going to be doing this for the rest of your life. Um, and I, you know, I always thought that was really good advice. I'm not sure. I knew it applied to me <laughs> because I knew, I knew I was going to be doing something else uh, after football. Um, uh, but it was, uh, it was great advice for everyone involved. I'll never forget, too, the other thing he was, uh, he was talking about, um, and I, he, he could ramble sometimes, but he was talking about pass blocking at some point, and he, he used the greatest expression I could ever think of for describing what pass blocking is all about. And he described it as giving ground with dignity. So as an <laughs> offensive lineman, as an offensive lineman, just think about that, trying to you describe pass blocking as giving ground with dignity. I thought that was just a great phrase. Only Paul Brown could come up Only with Only Paul Brown. <laughs> Blake Moore, our guest here, uh, former NFL player for the Cincinnati Bengals, played uh, for the Green Bay Packers as well. There's a couple guys that, that we want to talk about, but the guy that comes to my mind first, um, knowing that he passed away just a few years ago, he was – in the latter stages of, of his career when, when you joined the Bengals. But um, I, I'm sure you had a relationship with him, and that's Ken Riley, who just went into the Hall of Fame uh, not even, what, a week ago now. Um, yeah. One – uh, Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked about Ken. So, again, offensive defense, we spent so much time separated, uh, you know, in, 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 in practice and, and – and, uh, training and and everything and in our meeting rooms but uh yeah i knew ken uh, we weren't close friends but you talk about looking up to someone as a pro's pro the guy was just such a professional at everything he did the way he carried himself the way he conducted himself on the field and off the field he was such an example uh of a, of a professional in every respect i was uh, I was I was honored to be invited. Uh, they invited all the uh, all his teammates uh, to the inaugural Ring of Honor celebration, which happened in nineteen. Let's see, that would have been I'm sorry, twenty twenty one, right? Twenty twenty one. The uh, Bengals named their their inaugural Ring of Honor inductees, and uh, that was Paul Brown uh, posthumously, Ken Riley posthumously, Ken Anderson, and Anthony Munoz. Um, and three, three of those people were my teammates. And, uh, and then Paul Brown, of course, was the owner of the team when I was playing. And it was such an honor to be there. Um, and I actually got to sit up on stage. Uh, we had a little event beforehand with some of the fans. And I got to sit up on stage next to Ken Riley's oldest son, uh, who was there uh, to receive the uh, Ring of Honor uh, uh, recognition uh, uh, in place of his dad. It was just so, it was so nice to see him. And after the hall of fame award, which, uh, really, really made me happy. Uh, I just, I, I dropped a note to, uh, to his son telling him just how pleased I was that that had finally happened to somebody who was so deserving, really just sums up in one person, what a true NFL hall of famer is all about. Well, and, and, and I think it's interesting because George and I always talk about this because we we go back to Ken every year because we're so close here in, in the Akron area. We go to the Hall of Fame every year and we always see the different players riding in the Hall of Fame. And and Anthony Munoz for years has been the only Cincinnati Bengal that played yeah. that was in the Hall of Fame. And I know for years there's been a push to get Ken Anderson in. There's been a push to get Ken Riley in. Is it? is it gratifying to you to see a teammate of yours and to see a guy like a Ken Riley get in knowing that it's going to open the door for other guys like him? It is. And I, and he was so deserving. I mean, if you just look at the people in his position that are in the hall of fame uh, around him, 
he was just is such a deserving candidate. I was tickled when Anthony got in. He and I were uh, rookies together uh, in training camp. So, you know, here, here is the College of Worcester free agent, and then Anthony Munoz is the number one draft choice. Uh, you can imagine what a, what a dichotomy that was. So <laughs> in minicamp, we'd stay at the hotel, and then we'd, uh, we'd take – we'd literally – they'd put us on a school bus to drive us over to the uh, practice facility every morning and afternoon, back and forth to the hotel. There was Anthony riding on the school bus with the rest of us. I mean, he was just such a down-to-earth, regular guy. And here he is, you know, and I, I, got, I got the honor of playing with one of the best offensive linemen that ever played the game. And, uh, and he, again, talk about a true professional. All he cared about was uh, uh, being a pro on the field and off the field and, and getting better every single year. What an example uh, to, did he to block, get the play. Did, did he that? block with did he block with dignity? <laughs> he gave he gave ground with dignity, but he didn't give very much of it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Play, playing for Forrest Greg, did you see the the Lombardi ethic come through his style of coaching? Oh, absolutely. He was, uh, and I, actually, it's one of the reasons I I really enjoy playing uh, for Forrest, um, and uh, one of the reasons I was so pleased when I was. Uh, done in, in Cincinnati that he brought me up to Green Bay. You always knew exactly where you stood with Forrest Gray. There was no, there was no, gee, I wonder how things are going. He let you know every single day how things were going, whether it's a team or whether it's an individual. Um, and for him, it, the only, you know, it was all about winning. And he knew all the sacrifice and the self-discipline that it took to win in the NFL. And you talk about a guy who had been through it and knew exactly what it took. He was that person. Um, so when he talked about um, the kind of character and the kind of culture that was required to win in the NFL, um, he got your attention. And the other thing, too, is if, if you didn't buy into the way Forrest you know, wanted to make it work, um, you, know, you, you, could find, you could find another team and go work it out there. He wasn't shy about uh, letting people go, even if they were pretty good, if they didn't want to uh, – put in the time, energy, and effort to uh, be part of a winning team. In your second year with the Bengals, 81, of course, we're part of, I guess, two iconic games. The The first was the Freezer Bowl, obviously, uh, against the Chargers, and then obviously the Super Bowl up at the uh, Silver Dome against the Niners. Can you, can you share with us that experience and being part of all that? Well, when I think about the Freezer Bowl, that, that, that game – Anytime I think about it or somebody talks about it, I still get cold. I get chills. It is, uh, it's an experience you just you can never replicate or forget. And, I, you know, we were – some of the games this uh, offseason where we played some pretty cold weather, they talked about minus 10, minus 20. And I'm looking at that thinking, yeah, right. It was minus 59 windshield when we played. <laughs> and it's just it, – it's hard to even imagine playing in that kind of environment. Um, and uh, – just two, two quick anecdotes that I'll tell about that. I, when we got out, we were playing the Chargers, the San Diego Chargers, and they had played in Miami the week before. So we figured that the uh, absolute temperature differential for them between the two games is about 140 degrees, if you think about that, from one week to the next. Um, we came out on the field for warm-ups, if you could call it that, and uh, – we were out, we went out for a normal one, you know, Forrest Greg was like, you know, the weather's just the weather you deal with it. And we, we do our regular routine, went out for warmups, going through all our paces, you know, snapping, practicing chargers came out for five minutes, warmed up and ran back into the locker room. We knew pretty much right then that it was going to be over. Yeah. Uh, they just, they, they never had a chance. So, uh, and then our offensive line our starting offensive line decided to come out with the, with, with bare arms, um, that was uh, pretty intimidating, you might imagine. I was not starting. I put on every piece of clothing I could find <laughs> in the locker room, every piece. And then I would run out for special teams. I was on the kickoff return and the, uh, and the uh, uh, field goal and PAT teams. I'd run out, take off my coat and everything else, run out and, uh, and, and do the play and then run back to the sidelines close to the heaters I could get. It was freezing. <laughs> To, to be in a game like that, to be a part of a moment, because he mentioned it earlier, you know, Forrest Gregg obviously was a Green Bay Packer and would have been part of the Ice Bowl back in the day. So, like, I mean, yeah. I'm sure for Forrest, this was like old hat at this point for him to be underneath these type of conditions. It probably didn't compare to Lambeau. But what's 
What's that atmosphere like with the fans with so much on the line? Because I was at the Browns regular season game this year where they played the Saints and nothing was on the line and like nobody was in the stands and it really didn't have the same atmosphere. But seeing that plume of smoke over the fans when every time they breathe, what's that like? What kind of atmosphere was that like to be there for that? Well, the whole playoff atmosphere is, is just the, the level of intensity is ratcheted up because it's, it's winter. You win or you're done. And uh, there's so much on the line. And the fans, yeah, we had some fans in the stadium that day that didn't have any uh, shirts on, which, was, uh, which I think uh, was a problem for a few of them. <laughs> but but uh, we still, even in that weather, we had 40 or 50,000 fans in the stands that day. My mom was there. My wife, yeah, my, my wife was there. My mom, it was it was unbelievable how cold it was and people still showed up. Um, and the whole city was so excited. Of course, this, this season, that season was when the whole who day cheer, uh, began. That was when that whole who day, who day, uh, thing started back in that, that season before that Super Bowl. I never knew that. I never knew that that's where that began. I always wondered yes. when that started and, and how, how did that start? Where did that begin? What, what was well, the like? I think there, it, it, I, they're different stories. Uh, you know, one of them that's kind of humorous is also back in those days, there was a beer brewery called Hootapole. Yeah, uh, and, I love Hootapole uh, beer. It's great. Yeah, I know. And they, and they, and they, and so, you know, and they sold, and people would call them hooties. You know, you buy, you go buy a hootie, a hootie beer. And so I think some people think it was a, uh, a kind of a variation off of that hootie, hootie, hootie. Yeah, we like that. And so, <laughs> But I, yeah, there are other stories as well. But that's the one I like. So you they actually a... they actually produced that year that foot when we were running up the suit. They actually produced a uh, orange and black striped six pack of Huda poles that you could buy <laughs> in the uh, in the store. Did you buy them? <laughs> oh yeah, we all had them. I think I, I think I kept a can unopened for many many years and then realized that was a mistake. So then you go to the Super Bowl indoors, obviously at the Silver Dome. So what was the Super Bowl experience like? The whole, it was a, the best way to say it is it was a blur. You know, once we got there and remember there, our reward for going to the Super Bowl was, uh, was a trip to Detroit uh, in the middle of the worst auto, auto recession in the history of the United States. So the auto workers were on strike. You got all these high profile uh, professional athletes coming into town. It's, and and then to top it all off, we had an ice storm the day of the Super Bowl. So we're late getting to the state. We're on the buses. We're late getting to the stadium. The, the crowd is having all kinds of trouble getting into the stadium. I think we started the game 30 or 45 minutes late. Um, and, uh, and then once the game started, it went so fast. You just, you just, it, it just, you couldn't believe how fast it went. And uh, all of a sudden it was halftime and we were down by, well, I think it was 20 to six or 20 to three. And, uh, and you go into halftime, it's like, wow, how are we going to dig ourselves out of this hole? We almost did. You know, we came really close to uh, pull, uh, making the comeback there. We, we had, uh, was it uh, first and goal at the one yard line and uh, Pete Johnson couldn't get in the end zone after several tries. And that was kind of the, Defy, that would have I think that either would have tied it or put us uh, put us ahead that we scored that touchdown and I can still yeah, yeah, I can, yeah I can still visualize that goal line stand because I remember yeah. I remember watching the game you were behind you made this furious comeback uh, got hot in the second half and I, I do I I think that was sort of afterwards the centerpiece of that Super Bowl was that goal line stand because but for yeah. that you know but for that you know yeah, I think it was hacksaw. I think it was hacksaw Reynolds. Hacksaw Reynolds, yeah. Kept beating Pete Johnson in the in the hole and stopping him on the one yard line. It was, yeah, yeah that was that was, that was frustrating. And then it was over, just like that. It was over. And then all and then the only thing to do was cry and go back to Cincinnati. It was just it was just. And I will tell you what, you know, it was a great experience, and I love I love the fact that I got to go and play in the Super Bowl and be a part of that whole thing. But you never forget losing it. You never, and it still hurts. Yeah, it still hurts. So that's always a reminder. And when I, you know, I have a, I have a Super Bowl ring. It's, it's, it's a loser's ring, and that's a reminder to myself that I can always be better, and that we can always be better. Got to, got to win the last one. 
that's that's interesting that you say that 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 you had the the losers ring after that because so many people wouldn't think about what's the effect for the losing team but it is so you know i mean to be that close to the pinnacle it's something you're never going to forget i mean you think about the experience the eagles are probably going through right now being what three points away from from winning the whole darn thing this past weekend um let's well when we recorded this at least let's 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 talk about then your career after that. So you spend those couple of years with the Bengals. Um, you play up to 1983 with the Bengals, and then you end up uh, with Green Bay for a couple of years. And we've talked to other players that have been to Green Bay that played there, and they say that it's unlike any NFL experience that they've ever been a part of because it's secluded, but at the same time, like everybody in the town knows you. It is. It was the you talk about if, if you if every player could wish for a couple of years in Green Bay, I think they would they would wish for it and, and try to do it. I you don't really know till you get there, but it is special. It's a it is a magical place. And this was look, I was playing there before the they they've done a couple of renovations on the stadium. You know now it's all they have the whole marketing thing going, title town and everything. Back then, it was a stadium with fifty or sixty thousand aluminum seats that went all the way up to the top. And, um, and, the, and the thing that was special about it was the, the love that the town had for the team, no matter what. I mean, I played there for, you know, it was, we were eight and eight both years, nothing really special. Forrest was trying to get the team, uh, you know, in some kind of shape, but uh, we never had much success while I was there. And Forrest eventually left, and I think he went back, he went to SMU, I think, from Green Bay. But um, the town always loved the players. They always showed up. They just, they love that team. Uh, you know, that little tradition, and I, and I was a part of it. It was, it was wonderful during training camp. All the kids would show up with their bicycles in the parking lot because you, you would leave the uh, locker room at the stadium and we would go practice uh, across the, the big parking lot. Um, and the kids would come up with their bicycles and they would each pick a player and uh, give the player uh, his or her bicycle and take the player's uh, – shoulder pads and helmet they would carry those across the parking lot the player would ride the kid's bike over to the practice field um and then get the bike back and take the pads and go on and practice tradition that still goes on today pretty 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 cool yeah we were there a couple of years ago for our uh, our pro football research association convention and as you said it's it's just a unique place i mean it's 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 a small town but it's all packers i mean that's all you see when you come into town i was just amazed by that and just sort of the whole whole feel of the of of the town it, it just it's really an amazing place yeah and just and it, just a quick side story just in terms of full circle uh, I uh my son uh was about one or two years old while I was playing there um and then about 30 years later ends up uh, uh falling in love with and marrying a young lady from the Green Bay De Pere area we had the rehearsal dinner there at Lambeau Field that was pretty special. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, and 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 I want to touch on one thing about Green Bay too, because when I was looking at your pro football reference page, as, as we did before this, our, our research that we had to do, I noticed that you had two touchdowns that you had caught. And, and for a guy who wears number 60, which you did your whole career, that means you're not touching the ball a whole heck of the lot. And you got these two opportunities to catch touchdown passes how did it end up that Lynn Dickey was throwing you a touchdown pass? Yeah, well, that the first one is the best story, uh, and I this is this is the way I tell it. I think it's mostly true. Um, so I played, I, I sent, I played. You know, I was mostly I was center most of the time, and I played, but I played every position on the line. And in different situations, if I wasn't in the lineup, I would go in as the big extra tight end. Right, you would put in a, a big extra tight end, uh, check in as number sixty eligible, but played the tight end and, and block right? Block for the running game down on the goal line for short yardage. So we had, uh, we, I was in for one of those plays. It was a pass play. Um, I was the, and I'm, I don't, I'm not kidding when I said, I was the fourth option as receiver, meaning my job was to block for three seconds at the tight end position and then turn around and see who scored the touchdown. So, so we call the play, we run up to the line, snap the ball, I blocked for my three seconds. And what I found out later had happened is uh, the primary receiver fell down. The secondary receiver forgot his job assignment. 
and the third receiver uh, got locked up in coverage. So when I turned around after my 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, there on the goal line, Lynn Dickey had literally thrown the ball already, and it effectively lodged under my face mask in my neck, and I reflexively reached up and grabbed at it to protect myself and fell down in the end zone. And it was a touchdown. <laughs> I got up and I did the old, uh, the first, the only thing I could think of, I did the atomic spike. And then I looked up, I remember, I remember running over to the sideline and the person, I'll never forget this, Forrest Gregg, who never, he doesn't smile much on the sideline. He was almost bent over double laughing. <laughs> he, he was, he thought it was just hysterical that it actually happened. I did too, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, so that was the, uh, Fourth option receiver touchdown. Both of my touchdown catches were three up for three yards. George, I told uh, John I'd do this if you somehow managed to get those to be four yards each. You know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I remember Doug Deacon scoring a touchdown for the Browns, and I remember the announcer because I was listening to the radio play, and they said, you know, but you know. 20 years from now, Deacon is going to say he caught the ball, broke about five tackles, you know, <laughs> had to jump over, you know, he's going to, you know, he was going to embellish it to the point, you know, it was just at the goal line, but he was going to embellish it and make it sound like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, but, but the film doesn't lie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you Just to go back, when Forrest Gregg ended up, Sam, you, you had a, a brief there time where you had some uh, interplay with Sam Weiss, who became the new Bengals coach. Um, yeah, well, Sam, uh, so Sam came, so Forrest left, and that was after my, so four years with Forrest, and then Forrest left in the offseason for Green Bay. I came into training camp in Cincinnati, and that, and Sam Weiss was the new coach, and change of regime, change of regime, change of players, and that's, and they let me go at the end of training camp. So my overlap with Sam was just during the training camp there. In fact, that's also my only overlap with Boomer Esiason. He was a rookie that year. 1984, uh, um, and we overlapped in training camp um, just for a few weeks. I did not realize that. So you had the two years with Green Bay. What happened at the end of that two-year period that, that made it yeah, move well, like, on? Yeah, of course, back at, like I said, back in those days, we weren't making a whole lot of money, and um, I had pretty much planned all along that my next step after playing was to uh, go to law school and get a law degree. And um, – and I, I remember sitting down with Forrest after 85 and said, look, Forrest, you know, I'd love to play another year, but I had basically um, set aside enough money for uh, to so that our family so I could go to law school um, and, and graduate before we went broke. And uh, I said, I'd love to play another year, but I pretty much have to know I'm going to be here. And he said, love to have you stay. But we you know, they, there's no guarantees. And so I said, well. In that case, I'm going to have to make the tough decision to retire, um, and uh, which is what I did after the uh, '85 season. Decided to retire and went to uh, 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 went and got my uh, law degree at Harvard. Yeah, I mean Harvard for you know a guy that that's been through the journey. You went to Worcester, then you go to Harvard to to go to law school. I mean, take me through then then your life from that point to now. And, and I know you wrote a book too, which we have sitting here with us through uh, a pigskin prism. Tell me about life. What made you want to write the book and, and kind of how you've ended up where you're at now, Blake? Yeah, sure. Well, as my wife and I like to say, and, and my wife is the source of most, most, most good ideas since, since we met, um, we, uh, we, we've had a very nonlinear life. Uh, you know, going to, we met in college, um, got married shortly after college when I was a rookie in Cincinnati. And just, you know, thinking that we would have the opportunities and be able to do the things that we've done over the course of our lives together, you know, play in the NFL, go to a Super Bowl, law school. We've lived all over the country. Um, I've managed to, uh, yeah, I practiced law for a little while, but after law school and after a few years of practice, I was able to get in the uh, financial services uh, industry and and lead businesses uh, for several different firms over the course of my career. It's been great. Uh, we've just, you know, we, we, we've had, a, like I said, very nonlinear lives, um, but uh, it's been an adventure together and we've had a chance to live all over the country and meet just wonderful people wherever we've lived. It's been a great, been a great ride. Uh, your book through a pigskin prism. Uh, I was, looked at the back and saw that a portion of the proceeds 
will be donated to the CT Center at Boston University. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, when I was writing the book, and I think there's a lot more awareness of the whole uh, concussion head trauma issue now than there was uh, even when I was writing the book, but because I was writing it in 2000, kind of when I, I actually during my years up in Canada, there were, the winters up there were long and dark and cold. Uh, and so I wrote most of it in 11, 12, 13, and published it in 14. But um, that, that was when a lot of the evidence was coming out that there was, you know, there was this issue in the NFL around concussions and concussion reporting and concussion protocol. And I just felt that the research that they were doing there at uh, Boston University was really important to uh, players uh, and their families. And uh, it's just, uh, and, and so it was one of those things that I wanted to, that I wanted to do. You know, the book hasn't been a bestseller. Unfortunately, the, the, the proceeds haven't been massive, but uh, I've made sure to make a contribution to the, uh, to the university in that effort every single year, because I think they're doing really important research. And I think what you've seen in the league is a lot more attention paid to, uh, paid to this issue and player safety now, I think, is at a, is a much higher level than it was uh, when we were playing. You know, I, I, I know that obviously we can see you because we're doing this through Zoom. The people that will be listening won't be able to. But, um, you that's know, I much, know you much to their benefit. You know, I know that you've settled in Cincinnati. Um, I know that's where that's where you live now. And um, you've obviously been a part of the community. You've, you've been a part of Bengals. Uh, games you've you've gone to the ring of honor ceremony that they had you've you've been visible i guess in the community why did you choose to to make cincinnati the place where you eventually settled was there always a love of of what you had in those years in your time in cincinnati well so obviously a fondness for the city because it's the first place that was my first job after college so to speak and my wife and i got married here we had our kids here but I'll be honest with you, when we left in, uh, for Green Bay in, in 1984, um, and we did not expect to be back to Cincinnati. And most of my, most of my career after Cincinnati was, uh, was on the coast. So after Green Bay, I was, we were in the Northeast. I was going to school. Then we lived out in uh, California for 15 years. Uh, and then I was back to New York. So, and then uh, Canada for a few years and then New York some more. So, what took us back here uh, was uh, a job opportunity in my, uh, in my line of business. And uh, it, that came up somewhat serendipitously. But when they asked me if I'd be interested, because I was wrapping up another job, wrapping up another role, they asked me if I'd be interested in leading a business here in Cincinnati. You know, I thought about it for about five minutes and said, you know what? What a great place to be towards the end of my career. So I said yes and uh, really enjoyed being back in the Queen City. And it's been a uh, it's been icing on the cake to uh, be here when the Bengals are having uh, having a resurgence and get to drive around town and see all the Hootay stickers, all the Hootay signs all over the all over the city and the new stadium. And it's really it's really been fun to be back. Yeah, I mean, I have I have two more things Bengals related that I want to ask you about. One is about the team now um, and the other is about Ken Anderson. First, the team now. Um your, your thoughts on them, your thoughts on Joe Burrow, your thoughts on this kind of resurgence that they've had. I mean, do you think this is finally going to be the one that maybe gets that elusive Lombardi for the city? I mean, it, it seems like the pieces are there. We're, we're becoming bigger fans after some of the things the Browns have done. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it we, seems we, like – go ahead. We, wel we welcome more Bengals fans. Please join us. <laughs> yeah, so – so, you know, one of the things that's really evolved over the years uh, since I played is that it is now so much a quarterback-driven league. And you, if you really want to have a good shot to not only get far in the playoffs but win the Super Bowl, you need an elite quarterback. Um, you, you're just not going to do it with a mediocre quarterback. You know, back when I played, if you had a really good running back and an okay quarterback, you could go a long way and you could win a Super Bowl. But the league has really evolved to a quarterback heavy uh, and very specialized wide receivers. So when you think of it that way and you think about the, uh, the quarterback that the Bengals have, young, young guy, Joe Burrow, um, you've got an elite quarterback there. He's proven it now for two or three years. So uh, that, that means the Bengals, as much as any of the other top, I would say, six to eight teams in the league, uh, as long as he's healthy and they put good talent around him, they're going to have a shot to go deep in the playoffs every year. 
And then lastly, I mean, I know we talked about Ken Riley earlier. We, we talked about Anthony Munoz, but uh, another teammate of yours, Ken Anderson, I know I've, I've talked with George about this. We've, we've had great discussions about it, but Ken Anderson, um, do you think he should be in Canton? Do you think he should have a bust in there when everything is said and done? I think I think he's got the he's got the record and the stats and the longevity to justify that. I think that and I, and I'll tell, I'll say this. I think if we had won our Super Bowl against the 49ers, um, uh, he'd be in. You know, wow. I think that, that that one game, you know, having that Super Bowl win on his resume, I think that would that would put him in. Um, and you know, another person that 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 doesn't get talked about probably enough is uh, Isaac Curtis, another another guy who just got inducted to the Ring of Honor, who had an amazing career as a wide receiver. Back when wide receivers didn't get all the attention and all the uh, all the you know this, these were in running offense days, and Isaac Curtis was a standout wide receiver. Um, another guy that should uh, get some attention. Blake, we uh, really thank you for joining us. Uh, great discussion. Um, I, I always give our, our guests the chance to do this. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? How can they reach out to you? How can they uh, how can they they maybe meet or talk to Blake more if they wanted to? Are you on social media or anything like that? Well, I'm on LinkedIn if anybody wants to ping me there, but I'm not a very good <laughs> user. But, uh, you know, my my personal email is ebmorejr at gmail.com, and I'm pretty responsive. <laughs> Blake, we really appreciate the time and uh, and uh, thanks for all the discussions. And uh, George and I really enjoyed this this talk with you here you tonight. Very much. I enjoyed thanks. talking with you guys too. Thank thanks thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Have a good Blake. Evening. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, aka the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.